Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, boy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hey everyone, quick announcement before we start the show. Just wanted to let you know, uh, we're going to be at Crypto Invest Summit October 22nd through 24th. It's in Los Angeles. Uh, it seems like it's going to be a, an enormous conference. 150 speakers, 1,500 investors, almost 5,000 people attending. Uh, and Steve Wozniak is going to be there, uh, and as well as Tim Draper. There's going to be a lot of really cool stuff happening. And I want to meet you guys. I want to talk to you and, and hear how you like the show. Um, Come visit us. We're going to have a booth. So uh, we'd love to see you there. It's CryptoInvestSummit.io. Get your tickets now. See you there October 22nd through 24th. And now on to the show. Hello and welcome to your weekly dose of ether. Uh, Lucian and I today are going to talk about uh, decentralization, the word, and, and what it means in the context of cryptocurrency. There's a lot of confusion around this. We're going to talk about uh, the Network Block Explorer Block Scout, which is really cool. Uh, I'm going to help out with that issue of decentralization. We're also going to talk about universal login and improvement to usability for uh, private keys and crypto wallets and IPFS live streaming. Cool stuff in progress here with IPFS. So we'll get on with it. Lucian, how has your week been? Hey, Bijan. Um, it's been good. I've spent a lot of time programming. I over the course of this week, I finished the Stanford cryptography course. Um, I read a white paper that was sufficiently difficult for me to understand to actually be like, all right, fine, I'll finish that course. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And now I can actually understand what those um, mathematical notations written into um, protocol designs actually mean. Wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, I usually just gloss over those parts. Yeah. Yeah, there was even like, it was kind of annoying. There was, uh, I think it was week five of um, six. They had an entire week devoted to linear algebra. And the entire point of that is like, hey, these math problems are really difficult for everyone to solve. Solve these. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's not fun. Well, I'm sure, but... <laughs> I'm sure audience would be interested to hear about the uh, Stanford course, so we'll link it in the show notes. But uh, Tony Sheng had this article about decentralization, and it seemed to come from a place of frustration uh, because people use the term, they throw it around, uh, and when you ask what it means, you get a variety of different answers. So what was your take on this? My take is that uh, the word decentralization is actually the in, used as the opposite of something, the opposite of centralization. And a lot of people that are attracted by uh, the promise of decentralization are attracted because it is um, censorship resistant or um, it has this property in which you can't shut down or um, take away someone's funds. And basically constantly using the word decentralization is actually promoting something that is the opposite of what we've become used to like monolith facebook google style uh, companies that have a disproportionate power over the users or app developers and uh, the problem is is you can't really compare projects between each other because decentralization itself doesn't have a metric right 
And, and oftentimes people are talking about number of nodes, right? As if that is the single metric that's best used to determine how, you know, the level or spectrum of decentralization. And it's common in software engineering too, right? People think that lines of code or number of bugs resolved and, and these kind of naive metrics are actually a measurement of productivity, but it turns out what it, not only measuring things is important, but figuring out the right way to measure to get the, um, the insight that you're looking for is really important. And Tony Shang made a lot of progress and going back, you know, even into the papers that Wei Dai and, you know, Chom and, and Satoshi and trying to understand how many times has the word decentralization been used. And he found that in those earlier papers, it really, they really didn't talk about decentralization per se. They just more talked about how services of money and the medium of exchange and how contracts are executed is governed by uh, government agencies and offered to people that are legal entities. And what uh, the promise of blockchain is, is to make it so that it's not governments offering money to legal entities, it's actually untraceable entities offering money to, to each other um, and, and contracts that are enforceable without any central third party. Yeah, and if that has an, a way to explicitly be measured, then it would do... Uh, it would do the entire field a service because the opening um, remark to the blog post basically states that like, oh, EOS only has 21 nodes. I'm not sure how many nodes are enough to be decentralized, but 21 isn't enough, <laughs> right? So it's just this like gut reaction to um, basically having a shared uh, value system, but it's as if that value system is more ideologically based as opposed to saying like, yes, this is something that fits in the space and is doing good versus no, we don't like the direction that this project's going in because they've compromised some kind of core value, right? So mm -hmm. by saying something is decentralized, he was calling saying it's like saying something is unholy in the sense that it has no rigid uh, definition, but you kind of have like this knee-jerk reaction to it. Um, and I agree. Right. I think a lot of projects kind of like fly under the radar because they're able to make claims that don't necessarily need uh, rigid verification or proof. And, then, and that's where you get into these Twitter flame wars, right? Where people are arguing about, you know, whether this protocol or that protocol is sufficiently decentralized and they're not talking about a common terminology. Uh, and you're right. I think, you know, blockchain as well as decentralization, these are terms that are thrown out as kind of buzzwords that are used as marketing ploys, right? And if you can successfully pitch your service as being decentralized, well, now you have a seat at the table with other crypto projects. And now when you claim you have 10,000 transactions per second and you're decentralized, uh, it, it looks like your product is better than Ethereum, but to, and, and especially to uninformed customers. So uh, it's right. really important that we reset this uh, definition that Tony Shang is kind of doing for the community. Uh, and and it's, a, it's, it's really important that we are very clear about what this means. So let's break into it. Um, how does Tony Shang, and, and I think it was from Nick Carter 
and his earlier work about breaking down what decentralization means. How do, how do they break it down? And he doesn't necessarily come up with a, a solution so much as opening up the discussion, but the way Nick Carter um, broke it down, which is a really interesting paper, and you realize how complex the nuances are, he broke it down into three points, a meritocratic and um, public delegative democracy to make top level extra protocol decisions. Like, so let's... Yeah, that's yeah. basically saying like fork rules. If um, we make a change to the protocol as the lead developers and everyone disagrees with us, then they could fork off. Hmm. Well, so, literally uh, not like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fork off, man. Yeah. Um, um, but OK, so this is this is hard to parse. It's very dense, but it's saying about extra protocol decisions. So decisions that are outside of what the software itself makes, um, how, how do you make that, those decisions in a meritocratic, so in a, an equally or fair, in a fair way based on you know, whatever metric that is, um, in a public delegative democracy? So meaning the community is deciding um, with consensus around these extra protocol decisions um, in, a, in a fair and transparent way. That's kind of what I, how I'm reading it. Yes, and, yes. And, and, and some so, people have tried putting that kind of decision-making power on chain. Um, right. I know and, Polkadot and is it, doing that. And exactly. maybe Tezos too, on-chain governance. This is essentially what on-chain governance means, but both Ethereum and Bitcoin have a foundation and a group of core developers that end the, quote, uh, democratic aspect of it is basically a democracy of ideas, not of decision-making power per se. Um, and the interesting thing here is that, you know, with Tezos and, and other systems with the on-chain voting about the, how the protocol is to be upgraded, um, you're actually bringing inside of the software that extra protocol, those extra protocol or outside of the protocol decision-making. Um, and you're building in the democratic delegative kind of um, system into the protocol. Whereas the Ethereum approach is, no, we're going to organize as a community on message boards and Twitter, and we're going to fight it out about it in real life effectively and come up to a, a consensus decision. And you have these two ways of thinking that are being tested, but both of them represent this understanding that we want it to be fair and meritocratic, um, yeah. how we push the protocol forward so yeah and i also the, want to point out the fact that the whole idea of being skeptical to uh eos's distribution model was probably well founded not necessarily on the 21 nodes but on the fact that the people who run those 21 nodes have disproportionate power uh there was recently the scandal about some kind of insider trading or market manipulation scandal um, that broke. I don't know the specifics, so I won't get into it. But um, the idea that people that were working in the system were able to collude um, to basically make decisions unilaterally without being public and open to the rest of the network about it was exactly what people were trying to avoid. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what Vitalik brought up in, in a keynote at uh, the Blockchain Week here in San Francisco. Uh, and he had said, you know, he was laughing about it because we, we expected on or, um, this EOS 21 block producer uh, governance model to lead to collusion and bribery. 
and he was just laughing because he didn't expect it to happen this quickly and so obviously and and uh, i mean the fact that this was brought out just kind of shows that um you know what people call decentralization in eos is is really subject to a lot of different attack vectors um it just means that that you know even if it's theoretically decentralized um if if you don't have good ways of punishing bad behavior and you haven't thought through those mechanisms deeply then you're going to get into situations where it's not decentralized if it can be attacked um and so let's get to the second criteria here um that that they talk about Sure. It's a widely disparate network of miners or stakers. No individual has more than 5% of the distribution that makes intra-protocol decisions. And so, you know, this, this means, I guess, let's break this down. The, uh, the network of miners or stakers, these are the, the user owners, the people who have stake in the platform who are contributing by validating blocks and, and curating whatever whatever the resource is. Um, and they, which uh, no individual has more than 5% of the total token supply or monetary supply, they are the ones that are, are making intra-protocol uh, decisions. So, and that is within the protocol um, decisions about how to move forward. And, and the analogy in Bitcoin is that the miners uh, can decide which which uh, version of the blockchain that they want to support. So this allows for hard forks and soft forks to be dictated by the people running the nodes who have the most stake because they are, um, you know, trying to get to those block rewards. Yeah, and also the whole. I think it also comes down to the concept of collusion and because miners are in a privileged position um, that you don't want it to be overly easy to coordinate economic interests within miners so that they could successfully launch a 51% attack. Um, it's the same argument around um, ASICs resistance, for example. Um, the idea was essentially that there were two main ASICs manufacturers and Ethereum chose basically to go towards an ASICs resistant uh, GPU focused um, algorithm in order to uh, break into a market where people who have GPUs, which could be gamers or um, different right, types of standard, users. Standard video cards, right? Yes. Used yeah. to, to, to hash, you know, and, and try and get block rewards. Exactly. Exactly. And the the typical distribution of um, of graphics cards was more fair than the um, ASICs chips because ASICs chips kind of ran wild a little bit. They would basically uh, sometimes use um the machines to mine for themselves before finally selling it uh, and finally shipping it to consumers after they had right. used um, its utility and its peak efficiency up to a certain point or after they already start rolling out a newer version so that you're never actually more competitive in mining than the manufacturers are. Or, or they take a bunch of money for uh, a miner hardware, specialized mining hardware that they release a year later. So exactly. you pre-order it and then Bitcoin 10Xs 
and now you've paid you know twenty thousand dollars for specialized hardware that's obsolete by the time you get it <laughs> yeah that that's all a question of market power um and concentration and i mean there's antitrust laws in the books in the united states to prevent these kind of things so it would probably be beneficial to um set something up in a supposedly distributed and um non uh manipulatable system like um, and this this leads to you know censorship resistance right because if all of the electricity, the cheapest electricity in the world is in China, for example, then the government of China can kind of manipulate Bitcoin by manipulating the, the corporations that operate there and mine and, and have all the hash power. Exactly. Um, so that's that's yeah. a problem. You know, the ASICs is another another way of looking at that. So by distributing the network of miners, you're actually um, getting more resilience and more anti-fragility, where if one miner tries to collude, well, they have no more than 5% of the um, the stake or the mining power to be able to affect those protocol decisions. Right. And hopefully that would also mean that um, a government couldn't take control over a disproportionate supply of mining power as well, right. which is probably one of the biggest security concerns in Bitcoin, in my opinion. Okay. So then uh, let's look at, you know, the third one. The, uh, uh, sorry, a prolific number of cheap and distributed nodes that validate the transactions of the network. In other words, run your own full node. <laughs> and, I, and there's so much work around, you know, being able to, to run light clients on Raspberry Pis and things like this. But um, this is a problem in Ethereum, right? Because you, you hear horror stories all the time about developers, really interested developers trying to just operate a full node for Ethereum and, and, you know, having really big issues just downloading the blockchain. Exactly. Um, and, yeah. And the amount of network traffic that running a full node takes for Ethereum makes it fairly slow. Um, and I think the, but you can still run it on a computer that you bought within the last two years on a standard um, Wi-Fi system. Right. Like you don't need like a T1 connection and uh, an entire server stack in order to be to run a full node in Ethereum. Um, so they did this on purpose, though. And there are specific sacrifices that um, that were made in terms of scalability, transaction throughput. Um, you're essentially limiting the network's capacity um, because of the limitations to what the minimum viable machine running a full node is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so uh, I, yeah. I think, you know, I think the, these ideas are getting um, constantly improved. And, and I like Ethereum, the community and the foundation's focus on, um, you know, the, 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 the trilemma of security, scalability, you know, and, um, and decentralization. Or I guess it's security, uh, scalability, and speed, right? And security is where decentralization comes in. And yeah, I think I think that is the primary concern. Whereas you know a lot of other blockchain projects protocols are focusing on, you know, layer one blockchains that have thousand transactions per second. Where Ethereum is taking the approach of let's just have the base blockchain be as strong and robust and anti fragile as possible and build out those other layers that then can use that layer one as a settlement um, option in the case of a dispute. 
And, and if you have like a really, really great system at that low layer that um, is robust against all sorts of attacks, then you can use that as a trusted source of dispute resolution. And you don't have to have necessarily, you know, 10 million transactions per second on that low layer to get the same benefits um, that uh, to get the benefits of, of security and scalability. You can offload that or outsource that to the, to the other layers uh, above um, the, the, the core of the blockchain. Agreed. Yes. And also usable light clients is, uh, in my opinion, equally as important. It's actually easier to have a usable mobile light client in Bitcoin because of the uh, UTXO model versus the account model. Um, so you could basically subscribe only to um, network traffic that is pertinent to uh, your transactions. And then you're able to basically like have a very narrow field of view of everything that's happening in the network. Um, but at the same time, like there's consequences that come as a result of this. So having an Ethereum-based um, light client is actually going to be a lot easier after sharding. And mm -hmm. then you're going to have um, very light network traffic as well relative to the amount of traffic going through the entire network. And as you were saying, there are technical solutions. It's just that you have to experiment and you have to find the right ones. And you don't want to settle on today's technology to try to build the infrastructure for the next decade or 20. Well said. Um, so let's talk about the Block Scout tool because this is a way for consumers to actually start to verify that the dApps that they're using um, that are supposedly decentralized and uncensorable and can't be you know, tampered with and all this stuff, um, it allows consumers to actually verify that these companies are doing what they're saying they're doing. Um, yeah, and I also like the um, idea of being able to host your own a transaction. Um, it, you host so, your so own... how does it how does how does this work? So um, it, it looks like it's a block explorer. Block it's explorer. A, it's a tool, there you go. Sorry, <laughs> it's a tool on GitHub. Um, yeah. you can download and install it locally. Right, and um, I guess it's a way to query the Ethereum blockchain and any smart contract within, including ERC-20 tokens, uh, to be able to, without going to Etherscan or whatever, um, to verify yourself that your transactions are happening or, or that you have the balances um, that you think you do. Yeah, so it's an open source version of Etherscan. Um, Etherscan is a consensus product, but it's not open source. Um, so if businesses wanted to be able to run their own um, block scanner, then they were actually able to, uh, they could have paid consensus and had access to their code and their product. Um, I'm very much in favor of open source software and the fact that POA Network released uh, Block Scout um, means first of all that I'm going to use it <laughs> and I recommend other people do as well and the idea of being able to host and run your own block scanner is really interesting because you can create structured databases 
that show you the type of information that you want. So imagine you make an ether scan, but it's special tailored towards your app. So you could have um, a type of Google Analytics that you run yourself and that shows metrics such as like uh, number of transactions on your contract specifically or other, uh, other types of aggregate apps. So is this is this like how does this differ from things like the graph or any other blockchain querying tools? Is this more focused on consumers, whereas those are you know more for production oriented projects or what? So um, the graph is basically a query protocol that allows you to search um, the blockchain itself, while something like EtherScan or BlockScout newly allows you to allows the user to search transactions themselves um, it's really useful when you deploy your own um, private blockchain um, especially for debugging and other similar issues um, and the main reason that it's important to have your own versus using something like etherscan is that etherscan can be running um, software that actually traces or de-anonymizes Ethereum addresses. So the idea is that if you access Etherscan at a very uh, specific address, and let's say they're running Google Analytics, Google can actually now de-anonymize you oh, as the shit. owner of that address. Oh, right? man. I never really thought about that. Wow. Yeah. So it's really important, first of all, to have it open source, be able to run it locally. I mean, I consider it similar to running your own node, um, but you can do it for your users. You can make sure that you uh, keep your users anonymous if you would like. And I mean, I'm, I don't know for sure whether Etherscan uses Google Analytics, but I know too many dApps. I mean, even are... think about think about it like this. Etherscan you know, is going to be a target as a, as a, a, you know, buyout, let's say. What if Etherscan gets bought out by a company like Visa? Well, and now they, they have now a they business model. You know, yeah. they, they can de-anonymize de de all of that traffic uh, and all those IPs and link them to the most likely wallets that they own themselves. Um, and they can sell that data, right? So that's, that's a terrible, um, you know, uh, attack vector, I guess, because yeah. it, it just destroys your own operational security, your own privacy. And that's what blockchains are, are designed to free us from, is that the shackles of, of uh, data ownership by these centralized, you know, monolithic mon monopolies. Exactly. And a uh, block scanner is always something that is peripheral to the primary DAP. So people are usually don't think about it in these kinds of terms when they just link to uh, Etherscan. But yeah, that's uh, it's a good step to have it open sourced. And I've been looking for an open source version for a long time. Right. So, so, so what this you know, Block Scout does is it um, with a with it, with a lot of work, <laughs> you can figure out if your transactions, you know, you can you can keep private. Uh, and the next thing we're going to talk about the universal login is usability improvement. So it's again, you know, it's funny that we see these, the, this, this trade-off, right? There's the tooling that helps you become more private and secure. And then there's the, uh, people trying to make those tools more usable. Right. And we've talked a lot in the past about how, uh, Ethereum makes it really hard 
to have familiar user experiences because MetaMask, you have all these crazy numbers and, and characters and you have no idea what's going on and you have these gas transactions just to interact with the, the software that you're using and you have to load in money just to, to use a product. It's very strange and unfamiliar. And, and we introduced these mechanisms because they're more secure, right? Um, and other developers see these things and they get annoyed and they build things like universal login. So I was blown away by this demo. Um, maybe you could kind of walk us through it. Yeah, so um, Alex uh, Van Descend, um, mm -hmm. if I pronounce his name correctly, he's also the person credited with uh, the ERC-20 token standard. Um, so he's part of the Ethereum Foundation, works on the Mist browser, and he built a demo of a universal login system. So traditional websites have a login system that's basically um, like a password and a username and you look up someone's username and a hash of a password and if it matches essentially you get to go in um, for crypto websites first of all this isn't enough security and second of all um, you don't want to rely on something like phone number based uh, two-factor authentication because your real name is associated with your phone number so it would de-anonymize you if you do use uh, specific types of two-factor authentication so he actually built two-factor authentication without actually creating that kind of um, unifying, de-anonymizing uh, system. And it looks smooth. Well, what was your opinion on like the, the I mean, user it, flow? I, I come from like a consumer application background, and we spent a lot of time helping users with, with just the username and password experience. And you don't know how like how many of our customers would come to our website they had they had entered their email and a password and created an account a year ago and now they forgot their password and they try 10 times they end up using the forgot password link and they 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 go through that just to log in and buy a product on your service this is a terrible issue and so where the the industry has moved toward is this idea of passwordless authentication and you see it with like magical experiences like slack where they send you a link in your email and you click it and you're logged in, right? It's it's kind of just taking this idea of your email is your central point of failure anyway. So why have a password at all? Just just allow people to authenticate with with uh, proving that they have access to the email. And so the but most of the industry still uses in, in Web 2.0 the uh, password and username model. And what Universal Login does is it tries to do it tries to skip that in crypto and create a kind of paired device akin to you know two-factor auth or passwordless login that that allows you to authenticate a user uh, without requiring them to even know their password. Um, and and what's cool about this is that it's even easier to use than two-factor auth, um, and and way easier to use than usernames and passwords. Yeah. Uh, and to break it down, you let's you you log into a website or you go to a website and it offers you the ability to make a username. When you create that username, if it's available on that blockchain, you will be um, automatically, um, I guess, there, there's a smart contract that you're now able to interact with. And you're given it looks like it's linked to ENS. Right. So it basically looks like you have your username dot the ENS name dot ETH. 
right? Mm-hmm. So it would be Bijan dot um, Bitcoin Podcast Network being the Ethereum name server uh, site dot ETH, and that string is yours, and you get issued a contract. And then you go onto your mobile device, you type in the same username, and you click connect, and you basically link the two contract addresses so that whenever you log on, either from your computer or from your mobile phone, it will ask for um, validation from the other device. And you could do this across networks because you essentially can take that contract with you and you could make a connection um, through uh, through this platform. Wow, so now you don't have to have a new account on every website. You have one universal login and it doesn't rely on Facebook or Google, right? Yep, yes. And, and it's relying on ENS, which is you know uh, built on Ethereum. So it, it, anyone can leverage it, right? Um, yep. And, and, but there, there are a couple of key points here. One is that your device is authenticated and, and that is currently with the, the, the prototype um, you know, stored in your local browser. So obviously that's uh, an issue. And, um, you know, so there, there, are, there are things that have not been resolved yet, but the usability is really amazing because, you know, let's say you do want um, to use your iPhone and you have your browser in front of you for that DAP, um, you log in, you just go to that web, the, the website hosting the DAP, you enter the username, um, you find yourself, and then when you uh, try to log in, it will prompt your PC browser to authenticate you. So it's that, that familiar experience of using a second device to authenticate a new one um, that, that allows you to not to avoid passwords and all, all the complexity around it. Sure. Yeah, I feel like um, the security aspect of how and where your private keys are stored um, will kind of be ironed out but if all that has to change is you have to sign um, transactions in order for the process to close and then you're able to reissue signatures or messages um, thereafter then it's kind of cool like it's uh, it's a good start towards like a core interface for signing on uh, to dApps because it's something that happens completely differently in very weird ways, either with passwords or um, with MetaMask transactions or MetaMask messages like it does in Peepith or um, some even more creative uh, right. ways like remembering seed phrases for certain websites. I mean, I think also we have to consider that you know a user would have to have an ENS address, right? <laughs> Um, not no 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 the site would need an ens address you would just have to make a um you're not making a top level domain on ens you're making a a subdomain that is your name so you're not buying google.com you're buying bijan.google.com gotcha perfect in perspective okay well that's cool i i hope to see you know this implemented or see some some continued um work on it but definitely a huge improvement on the status quo there uh, with managing private keys and stuff. Um, so let's move into IPFS live streaming. And, you know, I see coming around the corner um, a lot of news from them. We'll, we'll, we'll you know, hold and, and wait on Filecoin announcements and such. But um, what people are building on IPFS constantly. And 
this was a demo or <laughs> attempted a demo of live streaming with IPFS. So um, kind of give us the high level on this, Lucian. So in this demo, um, they basically took the traditional streaming model where bandwidth is multiplied by the number of people accessing a centralized server. And if the centralized server runs out of input-output space off of disk, people reading off of the disk more than the machine's capable, you just add another machine. Well, that's standard. The IPFS model was that um, you have content locally cached in IPFS nodes, and after you um, download a batch, you're able to actually provide other people further down the line with the piece of data that you already have cached. And, and, and that's kind of like a BitTorrent-esque model, right? You kind of split the file up into chunks, and then you have different peers serve the chunks to the, you know, to each other. Yes. Yes, essentially. And uh, uh, it's just using IPFS, though. And it's and using IPFS so that you don't need, uh, you can have actually an interface in the browser, potentially, to be able to run live streaming without having, you know, a client application and, and running some other protocol. Is that is that the benefit there and um, over something like, you know, BitTorrent streaming? Honestly, I think BitTorrent streaming is probably a lot more mature. It's probably had like 10 more years of development. IPFS is brand new. Um, they just did this as a proof of concept because they knew that in theory, IPFS would also be able to be used for streaming. But they admit within this video that it's not ideal and it's not stable enough to be replicated. And the way they did it is essentially probably less optimized than a traditional streaming service would be. Um, yeah. But their comments were specifically around the fact that they didn't spend a lot of time actually optimizing the stream before getting to IPFS, right? So a lot of their work actually went into the part before the file went into IPFS, not issues necessarily with once it gets to IPFS to rebroadcast it. Right. Um, and they, I mean, that was just kind of like how do you, the thinking through how do you batch and chunk and how do you deal with the, the different intermediaries along the way? Because before, you know, they had issues with, you know, Firefox not accepting chunks bigger than 20 megabytes. They had uh, issues with FFmpeg, you know, just crashing <laughs> um, yeah. and, and rewriting, um, rewriting config files and so on. So um, clearly a lot more work to be done. I would have loved to see it in action. Um, but unfortunately, as demos often are, um, you run into bugs and, yeah. and it just stops the show. <laughs> they, uh, they used an Anchorman line during the video and they said 80% uh, of the time it works every time. Right. So <laughs> it, um, it's probably not stable enough to actually use, but it's a good an interesting idea. And the part I mean, that if, really, you, yeah. Yeah, if you just think about, you know, the, the vision of, Web three, it, it you really need a density of nodes to get things to work. Um, but if you do, then it works really amazingly. So you could imagine a situation where all of your neighbors are watching Netflix or uh, you know decentralized Netflix, and uh, you're all watching the same show because it just came out tonight. And and instead of going, all of you connecting to those central servers wherever they live. Um, on their many layers of caching and, you know, AWS uh, hardware and all this stuff. Um, 
Instead, you're just sharing it with each other and your neighbors. So why, why even go to the internet backbone? If you had some way to connect with each other, let's say via mesh network, and then you're using IPFS to share chunks of work or, or video to each other, um, then you avoid a lot of the complexity and energy consumption of the traditional internet that people often don't think about, right? They don't think about the inefficiencies inherent in our current system and what it takes to, what the, the energy uh, it takes to support those inefficiencies. And they point to how Bitcoin is so, you know, disastrous on the, on the environment. But the point I want to make here is that if we can get systems like IPFS and mesh networking and all these great tools out there into the world at high volume, at scale, then we can achieve the vision of Web3. But that's a big if, right? How do you get uh, millions of people all around the world to adopt this technology that they're very unfamiliar with? And that's the core struggle of the industry today. So I think that's all we have for the show. Um, We'd like to thank our sponsors, the Bitcoin or our publishers, the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Hey, any sponsors out there, feel free to contact us. Um, and our audience, thanks for joining us today on your weekly dose of ether. This was episode seven. We look forward to seeing you again next time.